Sometimes it's great to just sit around and reminisce about some of the great teams and units in football history. And recently I sat down with a a bunch of my friends to talk about the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Steel Curtain of the 1970s. Sit back and listen to this expert view of the Steel Curtain coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And boy, have we got a special for you tonight. We're going to talk some Pittsburgh Steelers history and one of my favorite eras uh, that I grew up in, the 1970s Steelers, and in particular, a part of their defense. And I have some help tonight. Uh, we have some great guests that uh, have been on the podcast before. Uh, we have Steve Massey. Uh, we have Aaron Harris and we have Harv Aronson. And uh, we like to welcome all of these gentlemen in. Uh, Aaron, maybe you could come on and just uh, remind the guests a little bit about yourself and uh, some of your projects. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on again. Um, so I'm Aaron, the host of the Football Odyssey podcast. I also have a blog, uh, thefootballodyssey.com, and have a YouTube channel where you can find my podcast too, and maybe um, a few documentaries that I've done, you know, short 10 to 12 minutes. Uh, but it's a football history show, a show that's also focused on football pop culture. It's a lot of interviews with authors or documentary filmmakers, other podcasters, trying to explore the game from various different angles and decades throughout um, American football's history from the late 1800s, you know, even up until, um, you know, current times. So you can check that out on any uh, podcast player and uh, you can get on the website too. Very cool. And uh, Harv, why don't you describe uh, yourself to the, the folks out there and uh, tell us about your projects as well. Yeah, and happy to be on the show again, uh, Darren. And so, yeah, born and raised in Pittsburgh and uh, now living in, in Florida, um, relocated here, but a uh, longtime Steelers fan, uh, history of writing, uh, minor in journalism. I used to have a Steelers hotline website uh, that's defunct now, but I wrote that for about 15 years. Now I'm working mostly writing for Abstract Sports, um, helping out Darren with some of his stuff, and I have my own YouTube channel, uh, Sports History Remembered. And on that channel, I'll pop up videos uh, about history of sports, focusing mostly on the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which is when I grew up. Um, But occasionally, I'll put on a a video about something else from an earlier era uh, prior to the 60s, but uh, focusing mostly on, on sports history. Okay, that's awesome. And uh, we have Steve Massey up too. Steve, tell us about yourself. I'm Steve Massey. I wrote the book Starless the, about the 1947 Steelers. It was their first playoff game, uh, and they had to wait 25 more years to get in, which was around the time that the Steelers' steel curtain came to life. It's available on uh, Amazon.com and other booksellers. The reason that we are all collected here together is not only our passion for the game of football and its history, 
but our passion for our favorite team, the Pittsburgh Steelers, and their history. And I consider you, know, you three gentlemen all to be experts in, in the field, and you, you're very well versed on Pittsburgh Steelers history. And uh, you know, it's one of our, all of us collectively, our favorite subject to talk about when we're talking about football history. And I thought it would be interesting to, to have a few segments like this to, to go back and remember some of these uh, great teams, especially the, the Steelers dynasty of the 70s. And the defense, I think, is maybe an appropriate place to start on that. And what could be a better place than to start with that uh, front four, that defensive line, the steel curtain? Now, uh, we've each decided to, to take a, a role of describing one of those uh, starting uh, members of the steel curtain. And uh, also, we're going to talk about some of the other folks that would come in and, and spell them for a chance. So, Harv, why don't you go ahead? Let's uh, tell us about who you have uh, chosen to talk about today and uh, tell us a little bit about them. Sure. So uh, I selected Elsie Greenwood. And when you talk about Elsie Greenwood, the first thing that's going to come to anybody's mind is why is this man not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? He absolutely, I believe, belongs there. Um, you know, it, it, he gets passed by and passed by. He's been a finalist several times. And for some reason or another, writers just don't won't, won't put him in. Um, the man was just a, a, a force on the defensive line. Pass blocking was unbelievable. In fact, in Super Bowl IX, he blocked two of Fran Tarkenton's passes. He had those long arms. He was six feet seven. Big guy. Uh, Hollywood bags as he went by. Um, and if people are curious, I tried to find out the other day why, how he got the name LC. And uh, Roy Blunt, who wrote Three Bricks Shy of a Load, and a lot of people may know that book or that author, asked him once, how did you get the name LC? And he said it was uh, it stands for Lover Cool. Um, and later he retracted that. And he said he just made it up himself. So the the history behind how he actually got LC is really kind of unknown. Um, but he was born in in Canton, Mississippi. Um, sadly, he died in, in, in 2013. He was only 67. He had uh, kidney failure, um, and he was in Pittsburgh at the time. Um, but he's it, it's funny about the Steelers is they used to find some real serious talent in later rounds of the draft. Elsie uh, Greenwood was in the tenth round of that 1969 draft. And here you go. He's one of the best players on the team and a uh, force on that steel curtain defensive line. But he, he lasted nine rounds all the way to the 10th round before he got drafted. Um, and I was curious the other day because I said, you know, Joe Green's in the Hall of Fame. Um, why is Nelson Greenwood? Because their, their stats are pretty close. Um, and he was a finalist in 2005 and didn't make it. Um, he made it again in 2006, still didn't make it. And somebody asked him, would he be upset if he was never elected? Um, his response was um, he feels that the Steelers that are already in the hall represent the entire team's accomplishments. So he was proud in that way that, you know, he was part of it. And it really wasn't that big of a deal to him not to make the hall. Um, but I did go back and look at Joe Green versus Elsie Greenwood. And just to throw a few numbers at your listeners, uh, Joe Green played in 181 games. Elsie Green went 170. Um, but in the sack total, Joe Green had 77 and a half, and Elsie Greenwood actually had 78. Um, 16 fumble recoveries for Joe Green, and Elsie Greenwood had 14. Um, and in the playoffs, where it really counts, that's where you want to get to the Super Bowl, Elsie Greenwood um, had seven, 12 and a half sacks in 18 games. And in 17 games, Joe Green has only seven. 
So it shows you that Elster Greenwood was a pressure player when it comes to the playoffs. He was he would come through in postseason. Um, so when you think of Elster Greenwood, I think he he's really got uh, ripped off there by not being in the Hall of Fame. He belongs there. A great player. Um, and it's just, a, you know, it's a tragic that he's not being voted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Absolutely. I agree with you. Great bio on Elsie Greenwood. Definitely a great compliment to uh, Mean Joe Green, which we'll talk about here in just a moment here. Now, Aaron, you also have uh, chosen a very historic figure on that defensive line and maybe one that people don't know a lot about, but boy, he was just as important as the other three were. Yeah, it's weird because, you know, Elsie, even though he was kind of underrated, I guess, through the modern lens, maybe, he still has at least a reputation for being the best stealer or one of the best linemen not to be in the Hall of Fame, at least. Um, whereas who I'm talking about, Ernie Holmes, number 63, his nickname was Fats. Some people also called him Arrowhead because of his haircut. He was really underappreciated even during that era. You know, you're playing next to Joe Green. You're a guy who's always going to be second fiddle to a person who rightfully so is regarded as one of, if not the best defensive lineman, one of the best defenders, period. Uh, and you're not going to get a lot of notoriety that way or a lot of recognition you know bill nunn the Steelers scout actually had once said ernie had felt underpaid and underappreciated compared to um joe green but there was uh, people on that team that actually would swear that he was just as good as uh green and dwight white even had said one time that he thought he was even better than joe uh which you know maybe it's a little dramatic or maybe not maybe he you know really thought that he was a fantastic player but you know, he was a guy that had that intensity that he always played with or that you want to see, especially out of a Steelers defensive lineman. LC once told, uh, I think it was a reporter, or he said, I think to Roy Blunt Jr., that, you know, he doesn't feel like his job is done, Ernie, that is, until he sees blood on the field. Then he knows that he had a good game. And I think that really speaks to how he was. He was someone that played with an unabashed intensity. Uh, he was very good at rushing the passer. I think he had 40 sacks, which was eighth on the Steelers all-time list. But for me, I think he was terrific against the run. When I watched games of him, I saw this one clip where he was going up against the Oilers and he just knocked the guard out of the way and just bent over Earl Campbell backwards. And for you know, to do that to uh, an Earl Campbell kind of back, that's you know, pretty impressive strength. And he was one of these guys from the HBCU schools, came from uh, Texas Southern University, came a little later on in the draft. Um, at one point, he actually wasn't really cutting the team that well. He was, I think, 300 pounds when he got drafted, and he slimmed down, lost a lot of strength, and they said, we're going to put you on the taxi squad for a little while. Uh, he went back to Texas, said he didn't want to play football anymore until the Roonies had, and uh, Chuck Noll had to come and talk to him and say, hey, we'll get you on the right path. And then he ended up splitting time with um, Ben McGee and then ultimately ended up taking over the starting role. Uh, he's also known, I guess, for a little bit of being a volatile personality. You know, he has um, the incident where he was, I guess, had a mental breakdown on the road, had fired off shots to cars and then up to helicopters. And then eventually Chuck Noll and uh, Art Rooney had to talk it over with, you know, trying to get him a parole or, you know, volunteer community service instead of going to prison, which ended up working out. And it sounded like he got the help he needed, but all, all in all, someone that is definitely, I think, number four on people's list when they name off that steel current defensive line. But he, he was someone who definitely had the respect of his teammates, and anybody will tell you that he pulled his own weight. He definitely had the respect of people that he played against. 
know, they used to um, kind of rile him up by saying, oh, Art, uh, not Art Shell, Gene Upshaw doesn't even know who you are. Johnny Unitas doesn't know who you are. And that only provoked him even further. But, you know, definitely one of the all-time greats of that team and of the, you know, the organization. He didn't get to any Pro Bowls, and he had one second-team All-Pro selection. So I think that sort of adds to his sort of, um, you know, status and reputation as being unheralded. But, you know, anybody who goes back and watches those games play, you know, he was just as ferocious and hard-hitting as anybody else on that defense. Most definitely. Yeah, he was uh, you know, great. He'd known for that that haircut. You know, that's the thing I remember about him. I mean, who could have a cooler haircut than that than have a, a great big arrow <laughs> right. on your head pointing forward? Uh, right. just, just fantastic. And, you know, going back to the LC, those those gold shoes, you know, that's what I remember. It seemed like every time the Steelers were on defense, you'd all of a sudden catch yellow out of your eye. think, oh, there's a flag on the play. You know, oh, no, that's LC's shoes. That's bad. Yeah. Now, I, I just you brought up a thought when both of you were talking here. Was LC the one that had the, the goldfish in his shoes? Is that? No, that was um, uh, Johnny, the Frenchie Fuqua. Frenchie Fuqua. Okay. All right. Yeah, that was Frenchie right. Fuqua. I remember that. Okay, I was I, I knew I just remembered the, the shoes with LC and I did the shoes associated with him automatically thinking the, yeah. the crazy shoes and it, crazy it shoes and nuts. the fur coats. Right, right. Well, let's go back to LC for one second because I forgot to mention that the yellow shoes we talked about. Uh, the reason he says he wore those was to distinguish him himself from Joe Green, so he didn't want to be overshadowed mm. wearing the same kind of shoes. So this kind of made him stand out. Um, so yeah, that's why he did that. And the Hollywood bags nickname, uh, I found out with some research that he got that nickname because he wanted to be an actor actually after football. So he would call himself Hollywood bags. Cause that's what he wanted to do, become, uh, an actor. Well, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about the, my guy and I, I chose Dwight white, you know, th this guy was also, you know, very, uh, fearsome much like Holmes he was sort of underappreciated when you but when you have two superstars in Elsie in Greenwood and Joe Green uh, it's hard to have a spotlight on you but you know just like uh, you know Ernie did uh, Dwight did his job he was known as the mad dog and he was nicknamed that because of his intensity he played like a mad dog now he was born in Hampton Virginia graduated at James Madison High School in Dallas Texas and played for East Texas State University which now we call Texas A&M uh, at Commerce and he was uh, teammates with another Super Bowl player who actually an MVP of Super Bowl Harvey Martin uh, they were from the same school. So that was kind of interesting coming from that small school like that. Uh, he ended up being a two-time Pro Bowl defensive end. And uh, he had a, one of his great stories is right before Super Bowl nine, that whole week leading up to it where they played the Vikings. He ended up catching pneumonia and got hospitalized and uh, down in New Orleans and ended up losing 20 pounds. And they basically had, uh, you know, the Steelers had, reserved to Steve Furness was going to be the starter of the game. And he prepared all week and, you know, right shortly before game time, you know, the mad dog comes in and says, Hey coach, I want to play. And, you know, his, his actual playing weight was only like two fifty five when he was healthy at six foot four. So think about that by today's standards, he'd probably be a safety by today's standards, yeah. like playing defense line. But, right. you know, so he, he's going into the biggest game of his life at that point, uh, weighing 235, being sick all week, probably being a little bit weak. And, oh, my God, what a game he ended up having. I, I didn't appreciate this as much until I read these stats. Now, 
the Vikings ended up running at him. They knew he knew his plight. They knew he was sick all week. Uh, you know, old Bud, uh, he was he was pretty smart. So he was going to run his uh, his big back, which was um, was it Chuck uh, Foreman? Foreman Chuck time. Foreman decided to run right at Dwight White, and he ended up. The Vikings had 17 yards running to him on 21 rushing plays, and ended up. Uh, a mad dog white end up getting the first safety in Super Bowl history by sacking Tarkington. So not a bad week uh, after being sick all week and go to your job and perform like that. So that's uh, sort of his, his big claim to fame. Now he ended up in his career, 46 uh, sacks of the quarterback, the unofficial total. But uh, I think um, our friends over at the pro football looked at a lot of tape and done it. I know John Turney did a lot of work on that and it's pretty good on that. Um, unofficially, that was his sack total. And he, uh, you know, ended up being one of the great defense alignment Steelers history. And unfortunately, uh, we lost him in 2008 when he had a, a blood clot in a lung, I believe, uh, based on a previous surgery complication from that surgery. But Dan Rooney, uh, went and said that Dwight White was one of the greatest Steelers ever to wear a uni Steelers uniform. And he was named the Steelers all-time team in 1982 and again in 2007. And he became a member of the Steelers Hall of Honor as a member in a class of 2020. So the Steelers definitely respect them. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe maybe we'll see some of these guys like LC and Dwight White and maybe Ernie Holmes. Maybe they'll find their place in the Canton, Ohio, one of these days in our lifetime. So maybe, you know, we'll see them there. So, yeah, some some great guys here. Now, now Steve, uh, you were going to talk about uh, Mean Joe Green and, you know, probably the most famous of that Steelers uh, steel curtain. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and tell us about Mean Joe? Mean Joe Green was the first player that uh... – was drafted by the Steelers when Noel took over in 1969. And in fact, uh, he and L.C. Greenwood arrived at the same time. Uh, Joe was an immediate starter for the Steelers. He was a man that was blessed with great talent. He had played at uh, North Texas State, which is now known as the Mean Green. Um, and he was a tremendous force there. Noel saw him, Will Walls, Jack Butler, uh, the entire Blesto team, and Bill Nunn knew about him too, even though Nunn was not completely involved with the Steelers at that time. He was a very uh, mobile guy, and for his time, he was a big man. Uh, he's about 250 pounds, and he was six foot four, very quick. He had big hands, big giant hands that he, uh, he employed very effectively in tackling people. It's a different era. The defensive linemen were the guys that got most of the sacks and best pass. Starting immediately in 69, he was named the uh, NFL uh, Defensive Rookie of the Year. He did get Defensive Player of the Year twice um, in his later career. He made the Pro Bowl 10 times, um, and he was named the NFL's Man of the Year, too, in 1979. He started doing a lot of work with children. I think the most important thing that Green did for the Steelers was not only was he a, a leader and a team captain, which he didn't want to be early in his career, was this innovation where he lined up at an angle uh, just off of the uh, center. And it made the snaps difficult for the homes or both lined up at an angle and they had to worry about blocking him. Because of this, Joe was able to get inside of the line 
and attack the running backs and uh, disrupt the game, which gave the linebackers time to cover short passes. Um, he and Ernie Holmes were the uh, tackles. And it also the, the defense that they did end up running was called a 4-3 stunt or stack. And this was developed by George Perlis. Uh, in the late 1973 season. They really used it a lot in the playoffs in 74, and it helped them to uh, to, uh, very low amounts of yards. I think the Vikings got 17 yards in the Super Bowl, total running. Um, They used Joe as part of the stunt, which was where the ends came behind him and came inside of the line. It created enormous blocking difficulties. One of the reasons that Joe was so important was that he was often double or triple team that freed up the other linemen. They weren't weak linemen, but you know, they came from different places. Elsie Greenwood had to be developed. He was tall, he was fast, and he really started getting more playing time after his first defensive line coach, Walt Hackett died. And the guy that got that line faster by moving Ben McGee and Lloyd Voss's playing time back was Radakovich, who came along after Hackett died, and then George Perlis came later. Perlis had a respect for Joe, along with Chuck Knoll. Uh, they knew and recognized that he was not only a talented person, but he was a smart person. So Perlis respected him enough to implement the things that he came up with. Uh, I think Joe was just basically the heart of the Steelers. I think they built the whole defense on top of him. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah, great points on Mean Joe and, and all of these uh, these four, front four that uh, were the starters in the heart of that Steel Curtain defensive line. But there were some gentlemen that contributed to that defensive line, spelled uh, some of these guys, maybe started out with them, and one of them uh, came before Mean Joe and LC came on the field and was sort of their mentor. Uh, Steve, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this gentleman. I always think of Ben McGee as the kind of a Moses figure that he was able to lead the Steelers and he got to the promised land, but he didn't, he didn't make it in. Um, McGee had been a player with uh, Bill Austin's team and Mike Nixon's in a very late Buddy Parker period. Um, He was a stalwart. He could play defensive end or defensive tackle. Now, Ernie Stautner had played uh, as his teammate um, back in the day, and then he, Ernie had one year as an assistant coach with the Steelers before he went to the Cowboys. And he said that he thought that Jethro Pugh, who played for the Cowboys, could have been better than Bob Lilly. And that was saying a lot because Bob Lilly set, set the standard back then. But Stautner said that if, uh, if Ben McGee's techniques were used well by Jethro Pugh, that Pugh could have been greater than Bob Lilly. He felt that, you know, Jethro was was bigger bigger than Ben McGee, but that uh, McGee's technique and his knowledge of the game were better. Uh, he mentored Joe Green, and when Noel got there, he actually started using Ben McGee exclusively as the tackle, as the defensive tackle, so that he and Joe were paired up. If you go back... And I know most of the people that are interested in, in football history 
We'll go back and look at all those great YouTube videos that the NFL fans put together. He's number 60. And you can see the two of them causing a lot of havoc there uh, with the with the quarterbacks of the time and the running backs. He had one pick six his career. He had one pick six and um, it was against the Packers in an upset game that they won in 67. Um, I think he got it off of Don Horn, uh, although Starr was playing. But that's neither here nor there. He also had 34 sacks. It's unofficial, you know, sack recordings before 1982. But with research, they've been able to figure out exactly how many most of these guys had. Uh, So he was a big influence on the Steelers. And he stayed with them a long time. What I like to say about Ben McGee is that when Chuck Knoll had his job interview with the Steelers, he, he was either going to go to the Bills or the Steelers. When the Steelers interviewed him, Noel pretty much told Dan Rooney that he was going to have to gut the entire defense except Ben McGee. He specifically mentioned him in the job interview. He said that's the one guy that he felt like he could build off of. Uh, and so uh, Ben goes all the way down through the 72 season. His last game is against the Dolphins. And um, in the AFC championship game, uh, and he was a big factor in that game. The Steelers played that game pretty well. Uh, so, you know, Ben's a guy that I've, I sure hated that he wasn't able to get a ring. I just put it like that. Very true. Never really got the credit that he well deserved for, uh, you know, anchoring that line for so many years and mentoring some of these great players that we just talked about. But Steve, you uh, mentioned and won't let us forget about another great player that really came in and, and spelled these guys and really helped out on that steel curtain and made it really what it was and uh, took over for one of the guys when they departed. Uh, Steve Furness was a, a backup uh, he joined the Steelers in, uh, I believe it's 1972. And Steve had the chance to be on the uh, U.S. Olympic team. He was a hammer thrower. Um, back then, they had these 35-pound hammers that these guys threw. So he's got that football player strength, and he decided to go and play with the Steelers uh, instead of going to the Olympics, partially because it paid money and the Olympics didn't back then. Um, he, he was the backup man. He didn't get a lot of playing time. He was on the practice squad for quite a while. Uh, it was called the taxi squad then. And so Steve had actually been waiting a long time to get his first chance to start. Um, on Monday night football against the saints, he finally got a chance to start. Ernie Holmes was injured. And in that game, he had two quarterback sacks, nine unassisted tackles, and four assisted tackles. So he had been like this guy waiting to be, you know, unleashed. Uh, when he finally had his chance, he had a big impact. And, of course, it's it's really a gracious thing about Steve Furness because when Dwight White was uh, in the hospital with pneumonia right before Super Bowl IX, uh, Furness prepared for the entire two weeks before the Super Bowl ready to play his best. Dwight got out of the hospital bed, showed up, and Steve Furness immediately went to George Perlis and he said, you know, we'll be back again. He was right. Uh, we'll be back again, so I'll get another day to play. And, and I think Dwight, you know, I think Dwight should start. Um, 
again, I thought that was really gracious. He he did end up replacing Ernie Holmes uh, later when Ernie was uh, sent to Tampa Bay when he was traded to Tampa Bay. He had a great last two years. Uh, the Steelers traded him to the Lions, and uh, it hurt Steve because they didn't warn him. Uh, he found out from Mike Webster when he went in for practice. He had no idea that he had been traded. And so, uh, you know, this was a thing that was pretty cold. And um, um, I think it definitely could have been handled better. But Furness had a great impact on the team. And he made a transition from using Ernie Holmes to his stepping into the starting role for those last two Super Bowls. Okay. Now, We've talked about, you know, these guys and uh, we've talked, now we've talked about, you know, uh, Ben and uh, Steve Furness uh, coming in and making that line very solid. Now, let's let's have a, a sort of a roundtable discussion here on, you know, the importance of that defensive line and what they did to make that Steelers defense you know, so great. So, so Herb, why don't you give us uh, some of your thoughts on the defense? With the line itself, I mean, they're infamous. I mean, they, they were nasty. Uh, Joe Green, players, opposing players would actually fear this guy. I mean, he was his nickname fit him. Uh, you watch old film of him, you'll see him pushing people around, kicking them, punching them. I mean, <laughs> he was nasty. And so that whole defensive line picked up after that, too. And you just didn't want teams did not want to run against them because you knew you were not going to get very far through that line. And if you did, the Steelers have a reputation of the greatest linebackers ever. And you get past that defensive line, you're running into some really great linebackers waiting behind them, Jack Lambert, Jack Ham, um, even Lauren Taze, who make a big name for himself, was an excellent, excellent linebacker. Yeah, so yeah, definitely all, all very true. Now, Aaron, you've watched uh, quite a bit of video on the Steelers team from the 70s and you know, remember them. And what are some of the, the great things that you saw coming out of that defensive line that, they, that made them so special? Well, I think in some ways too, like from um, like a, a schematic standpoint, it, it felt like they were also ahead of their time in terms of it wasn't a passing league or a pass first league that they were in, but you know they did go up against some pretty good passers and guys like Kenny Anderson or Kenny Slava throughout their time, and they felt like one of the first four man lines who were really built to go after the quarterback. Um, obviously you know, there have been some other good defenses and defensive lines in particular, but it seems whenever you're watching these highlight films, you're watching games of the Steelers, anytime a quarterback drops back, you know, they have, you know, at least three of the four defensive linemen in their face. And it just feels, you know, it just appears as if they were almost ready to rush the passer at every given moment. And when you look at like Joe green, you know, like tilting himself at the, um, at the center just to take up more blockers and they were running stunts. Um, you know, they were really doing things that were really ahead of their time that I don't think a lot of other four man lines had experimented with. And that because of their ability to rush the passer so well, they had that prevented or not prevented, but that didn't require Chuck Knoll to have to send Andy Russell or Jack Ham after the quarterback all that often. You know, they could go back in coverage. And, you know, for a guy like Jack Lambert in his own right, who revolutionized his position, you know, he could go back and cover receivers downfield. Um, and you know, wasn't required to be with them that long because they had a pass rush in there. So it really worked out for the best of both worlds for you know people in coverage and for the top four who were rushing. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, you bring up you know we we're so used to the last 
probably 30 years, the Steelers, maybe longer than that, Steelers being, you know, a 3-4 defense and the, mm-hmm. the the job of the lineman is to eat up blockers and keep the, keep the backers clean and let them be the stars of the show. That wasn't the case in this more of a, a 4-3 that the Steelers ran back in the 70s. And you know, what do you what do you do if you're an offensive line? You know, even like the great offensive lines that the Dallas Cowboys had and the, you know, the Raiders had with all the talent they had, how do you account for these four individuals we just described, and you, know, you can only double team one of them. You're going to leave, yeah. you know, three of them to to sort of roam free, and they sort of had, uh, you know, free roam by, by the defensive scheme. To if they wanted to go to the backfield, they could go. You know, I yeah. don't think there was anything holding them back. Where you see it's a little bit different what we've seen recently from the Steelers. The fact that Lyman couldn't really use their hands too in the beginning. You know, they had I guess the rule changed in '77, but the fact that they had to keep them tucked in. I mean that what can you do against those kind of guys? You know, they'll just like sweep you to the side. And Aaron, you mentioned Jack Ham, and I just, I can see him over and over again, picking off balls. I mean, he had so many interceptions um, and, you know, he didn't have the size, but that guy I think was one of the smartest linebackers ever play the game. I mean, he, he was a technician on the field. No question about it. Yeah, that's now let's uh, talk about Harv. Uh, you know, you, I know you got to see quite a few of these games either on television or you, you lived in the Pittsburgh area at that time. Maybe yeah, you yeah. got to witness some of them. Now, what, oh, yeah. what's one of maybe your most memorable play that by one of the, those uh, front four of the Steelers defense back then? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I really have to go to Super Bowl nine and and LC Greenwood's play in that game. And the <laughs> funny story about Super Bowl nine is I was 16 at the time. And I was having hernia surgery <laughs> and I was in the hospital and my father came to me and he says, all right, listen, you're going to watch the game, but do not jump up and down and get excited because you will bust your stitches. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched that game from a hospital room, but uh, the play of Elsie Greenwood that day uh, and, and Dwight White that you mentioned, you're right. I knew he was sick and he was playing sick and what a phenomenal game he had. Um, so those two right there stood out as far as any game I can remember that they the defensive line stood out. I mean, you can recall many, many, many games and moments, but to pick one, that would be the first one that comes to mind. Okay. And Aaron, is there any famous plays that uh, you can remember from uh, viewing these these great teams of uh, something that really stuck out in your brain and something that, Hey, you're talking about steel curtains, defensive line that, Hey, this is the play that uh, comes up over and over. You have any of those? I don't know if I have a specific play. I mean, the Super Bowl, um, I think Super Bowl 10, maybe it was 10 or 12, one of the ones against the Cowboys. I just have this image of Rodgers. I think it was actually the second one because there was some pretty, there was a few turnovers, I think, in the first quarter and the second go around that ended up being one of the best Super Bowls ever, maybe the first great one. Uh, I just have this image of Roger dropping back in the shotgun and the team just swarms him and he ends up fumbling the ball. But the man really had no room to step up in the pocket. He could barely, you know, get two hands in the ball, get his facilities together. And, you know, when I just think of, like, what a dominant team or, like, what a dominant defensive line that was to, you know, when the stage is on them at the brightest moment, you know, they are just relentless and at pursuit after the ball. And the fact also, I think maybe the reason why it stuck with me is because, you know, the Cowboys at that time and the Steelers, you know, were two – there was such a dichotomy there between how the two teams won – you know, one team was very defensive oriented, ran the ball, you know, had a relatively, you know, small number of plays compared to what the Cowboys were running. And, you know, they're shifting, using a lot of motions, you know, shotgun, which was ahead of their time. 
um, you know, a lot of different formations. It just seemed that it didn't matter to that defensive line. You know, they were, they just had a man in front of them that they were going to be, and they were going to get after Roger. Yeah, that's uh, definitely some great points and some great memories. I remember those as well. Now, it's one, I guess one thing that really sticks out to me, uh, remembering watching the games is, you know, sometimes, you know how you see a lot of times on screen plays where, the the offensive line will sort of you know throw a half ass block and then let the defenders come in to you know yeah. open up for the screenplay. What well, seemed like that on most pass plays when the Steelers defense was out there, and it might have been a running play, it could have been an actual pass play. It wasn't you know downfield, but there was just so much talent on that line. But the one moment that I I think about is when Earl Campbell came on. It was either his first or second year. I mean the. Dude had uh, you know thighs like tree trunks. He had to be like hitting a brick wall when you're trying to tackle him. I'm sure. And the Steelers knew this. And what they did to stop him was like uh, Aaron, you mentioned earlier, the gang tackling. And these sure. guys and that front four was all over him, no matter where he went, shedding their blocks and and finding him. And then you know the backers and the cornerbacks are coming in to clean up. But man, what an effort! Uh, especially those first two games that uh, Earl Campbell came on the scene where he was just blowing the doors off every defense he faced. So. I, I, yeah. You know, my one story I remember clearly about Earl Campbell, and it didn't involve defensive linemen, it involved a defensive player. You may remember Donnie Shell bending him half him. I think he broke his rib actually. He hit him so hard, and he and Campbell went down real easy. And I swear, I think he broke his rib on that play, if I remember correctly. But I do remember seeing Donnie Shell take him down single handedly. It was amazing. That's yeah. a big, big man. Go ahead, Aaron. I think another thing that's uh, interesting about that steel curtain line was that I feel like they were also the first uh, was like superstar defensive line unit. I, I think the fearsome force might've been a few years ahead of them, but yeah, they were the first on, they were like uh, the defensive line that was featured on time magazine, you know, back in the seventies, which, you know, that's a huge deal, especially, you know, that's a, a pop culture, you know, institution that people always go to as a resource for learning and entertainment i mean the fact that you can make that especially i think really spoke volumes just to how impactful they were on the game and how dominant they were throughout the sport it's interesting you brought that up aaron because i was thinking about that the other day what defensive lines in history could compare to our steel curtain and i thought of the mm -hmm. purple people leaders in minnesota mm -hmm. um merlin olsen and his line with the rams sure. i don't think they compare whatsoever in no, no way yeah, they were they were all you know staunch players, but I think collectively as a unit, they just couldn't produce the same, you know, the mm -hmm. same energy within the sport and the fan bases. Yeah, and, and obviously the defensive line plays a big part on that defense. And one thing I was going to point out was when they won back to back Super Bowls, 74, 75, 9, and ten, they were trying to get back to a third straight Super Bowl. And if you guys remember correctly, when they got to the championship against against Oakland, Franco Harris and Rocky Blair both were hurt. So mm -hmm. the Steelers had essentially no running game. But if you look back in the stats of that season, 76, that team, they say, was probably the best team of any of the Super Bowl teams, and they didn't get to the Super Bowl. They have a handful of shutouts that year. I mean, they were Five, so yeah. dominant that season. But wasn't that also the year that uh, Bradshaw got hurt with the, yeah. and uh, Mike Kruzek was the quarterback for most of the season? Yeah, it's that famous play where uh, Turkey Jones like lifts him up and drops him. Oh, my head. gosh, I remember and that. I, I, I was <laughs> yeah. in Cleveland Stadium when that happened. And as a 10-year-old oh, really? you know, oh. or however old I was, it wasn't a pleasant sight, especially when you see your I thought he actually killed the guy. Down, going down. Yeah. yeah, I thought he was dead. I mean, he didn't move. He was not budging. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, he broke his neck. God, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that I think 
uh, over the course of the last five or six games, I think they only gave up 28 points. Yeah, it was amazing. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, especially in the that, NFL. <laughs> that's that's a yeah. great feat at any time. Well, mm-hmm. okay, gentlemen, do we, do we have any final thoughts on the steel curtain? Uh, other than they're the greatest defensive line ever? No, I don't have any other thoughts. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the, the fact the fact that they have stood the test of time of mm-hmm. not only being in the conversation, but for many people being the best defensive lineman ever ever just is a testament to uh, you know who they were as players to their coaching, um, and the fact that you know as a unit the the way that they are able to kind of keep their own mythology going, mm-hmm. I, I think just shows that within the realm of football, you know, and they're, actually they're, they're irreplaceable. Yeah, and beyond that defensive line, I mean, we have to give credit to the rest of that defense too because they had 11 guys in that field that were all all pro. Mm-hmm. And then in beyond the starters, they had guys back up backing them up that could be starters on other teams. I mean, they had such a phenomenal defense with such depth. Uh, it was You'll never see that again. No. Uh, absolutely. Well, gentlemen, I, I want to thank you for joining us here tonight. It was a great discussion. Uh, hopefully we we shed some light on some of these uh, these newer generations on how great this uh, Steelers defensive line was. Uh, so I, I thank you, Aaron Harris, Harv Aronson, Steve Massey. Thank you all for joining us tonight. And uh, hopefully we get together again real soon and talk about some more great Steelers history from those uh, 70s teams and some of the other teams as well. So thank you. Yeah, I look forward to it. Can't wait. Thank you. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.